Welcome to episode 13 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. This week, we continue our first responder podcast series. During the month of June, I'm going to be releasing podcast episodes in which I talk with fellow first responder podcasters. Before launching my own podcast in February, after years of thinking about it, I followed several law enforcement and other first responder related podcasts for several years. As a newbie, I did not know what to expect when I reached out to veteran podcasters like James Gearing of Behind the Shield, whose episode you heard last week, and Garrett Teslaw of The Squad Room. What is so great about the wellness podcasting space that I've noticed is that those doing the work are gracious, caring, and truly called to serve. All responded to my cold emails right away and not only agreed to be on my show, but spent time talking with me about podcasting tips, recommendations, and advice. Dr. Rochelle Zemlock is no different. She's my guest today, and she is one of the hosts of the Code 3 Families podcast. She's a licensed child and family psychologist that specializes in seeing first responder families. She and her friend, fellow therapist, and fellow first responder spouse talk to each other about topics specific to first responder families, like why a first responder spouse can feel underappreciated, helping your first responder kid manage the challenges, and her latest episode, What Are Your First Responders' Boundaries on Bringing Work Home? Rochelle and I had a lot of fun getting to know one another, and she was a really good sport after I told her that the first 20 minutes of our conversation was not being recorded and we needed to start over. What I loved about talking with Rochelle, or Dr. Z as I started to call her, is that not only is she good at what she does, but she's so likable and personable that it makes it easy for first responders to reach out to her. She also regularly posts short educational videos on Instagram, which only helps build her credibility and accessibility. It's how she actually gets a lot of her business. So if you enjoy this show, please share it with someone, give us a review, and if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website. So um, full disclosure, I just started talking to my guests on today's podcast, Rochelle Zemlock, which whose intro I'll do here in just a moment. Um, at about 20 minutes into the interview, I realized that we weren't recording. <laughs> Happens. So everything was going really well. Um, we will try to we will try to replicate as much as we can. But we'll just say you know, it was perfect. It w- we're not going to be able to do that again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so anyhow, here we go. I am definitely a rookie podcaster. So just want want everybody to know that before we get started. But um, so today I'm going to be interviewing Rochelle Zemlock. She's a licensed child and family psychologist in California. She specializes in supporting and educating first responder families in private practice. She's married to a firefighter and has three siblings in law enforcement, so she knows firsthand the impact a career as a first responder can have on families. In her practice, she helps to provide first responder families with information that will help them be healthy and resilient despite those impacts. She's also the author of the Firefighter Family Academy, a guide to educate and prepare spouses for the career ahead. Dr. Zemlock also has a podcast, Code 3 Families, and a blog on our website geared towards supporting and educating first responder spouses. So welcome to the show for the second time, Rochelle. Yes, happy to be here again. (laughs) 
excellent. <laughs> thanks for thanks for being a good sport. Yeah. So, um, so anyhow, we uh, what we were talking about was uh, Rochelle was just kind of laying the groundwork, giving us a little bit of background on where she's from. She's currently in California. So, Rochelle, if you could just tell everybody a little bit about how you grew up. Um, and your family dynamic because you're yeah. you grew up with three siblings in law enforcement. Yes, I did. Okay, so I have two older brothers who are in law enforcement, and one of them is also married to a law enforcement officer. So, you know, I I have two older brothers. I'm the I'm the baby sister, and when my oldest brother went into law enforcement, I was in high school. So I. I was pretty young and I really grew up in a law enforcement family. And it wasn't until um, the end of grad school that I met my husband, who is a firefighter. So I connect with both worlds, uh, you know, a lot. And and we see it and, you know, we're all connected. We all live by each other. We all live in the Bay Area. So um, I'm surrounded by it. And on my husband's side, he has a brother who's an emergency room nurse and his partner is a paramedic on an ambulance. So we're really surrounded by first responders. And then here I am and I sit in the office and do therapy with all first responders. I, I specialize in, <laughs> in help. I think you might have the toughest job, actually. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know about that but um it definitely gives me insight into you know helping and and first responders feel that you know they they want to know that someone understands their world which is why i feel like um it's important for me to help in this way yeah and we talked about this already once but i had asked you if like your parents or if you grew up with with law enforcement or first responders in your family and you said you didn't no. it was just the path that all you and your siblings took the path and they were all like you know my oldest brother kind of started that path right and he just knew from like young in high school like this is what he wanted to do he was just like on that path he wanted to be in law enforcement and the same thing with my husband he knew at a very young age and I was like this is what I want to do and just geared his life towards it so I think that's a common experience where it's just like this passion or mission well and one thing that really comes through to me about you uh, although I've never met you in person and the, the reason why I reached out to you in the first place is your passion for mm -hmm. your work because you obviously are, um, I hate to use the word busy, but you just, you have a lot going on. You're yeah. a spouse of a firefighter. You uh, have a, a full-time career, a practice. You're a mom, a podcaster, an author, mm -hmm. and, and, but you just have so much passion and drive for what you do. I, I've yep. seen you on social media. Mm -hmm. um, and when I reached out to you to see if you'd be on my podcast, there was just no hesitation. So, yeah. um, why don't you tell everybody, um, how do you do it all? And kind of what drove <laughs> oh you gosh. to start doing this work? What, what, how did it all begin? Okay. How do I do it all? Life is chaotic. So you said I'm a mom, but I feel like I have to say I have a four month old at home and a three-year-old because the terrible threes is a challenge. And then on top of that, we have a newborn. That means I'm getting up you know, multiple times a night for the last four months. So it's pretty chaotic. And then on top of that, of course, I have a spouse who leaves for 48 hours in a row. You know, this week it's 60 because there's some sort of mandatory overtime. We have fire season coming up in the West Coast, which means he could be gone for two weeks at a time, which don't even wow. get me started on because I don't know how I'll survive that with everything that I have going on, but we'll deal with it when it gets here. 
<laughs> wow, that's amazing. So, and not really being familiar at all with with that, especially oh, in California. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's amazing. So, so he could you would you may not see him for two weeks at all. Yeah. So okay, what we live okay West Coast fire season is like getting worse and worse every year and kind of expands throughout the month. So in May, we have to already start thinking about it because there's already like staffing issues that they like need more staff, right? But really like as June hits and the the temperatures start rising, we start to see, you know, wildland fires pop up. So for fire families, this is like a season. Like you really have to prepare for the fact Mm -hmm. that like every time he goes to work, he may not come back for two weeks. You're hoping he comes back in two days, but you may get the call in the middle of the night that's like, I'm in LA or I'm over here and I and I don't know when I'm going to come back. But in our department, they can keep them up to two weeks. There are wildland, like Cal Fire departments who will could be like 30 days, mm, like wow. 60 days. I am not that spouse in that fire world who also have children but it's like a big deal and probably we'll expect to see it through october so this is kind of the expanding season now where not until november do we start to go whoo okay back to normal um but it's hard because you have plans set up for and i rely on my spouse to take care of the children when i'm at work and so when suddenly he's ripped away for 2 weeks and we weren't planning on it it's like you got to kind of call in your support system and lean on family who we live next to thankfully and other fire families who get it and help out well even more reason for the type of work that you do and the support yeah. that you offer um, is even more important because it's stressful enough for families to have to deal with mandatory overtime but yeah but two weeks is a little bit different than, you know, maybe, you know, two or six hours. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and let me answer your question. You're kind of saying, like, how did I get into this? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I knew I wanted to be a, a psychologist, a therapist and help, but I didn't really know who I wanted to specialize in or what I wanted to do. But, uh, you know, in grad school, you have to do your own research, uh, the, my dissertation, your own published research. And uh, I watched my brother's as law enforcement officers really go through some changes in their kind of personality, their outlook on life. You know, we hear about that with first responders, but I didn't know exactly why that was, right? So it kind of intrigued my interest. Like maybe I'll do something, you know, with law enforcement and try and contribute to this world somehow. And so my brother paired me up with a sergeant who was running their peer support team for the last 20 years, who was very highly respected. And I talked to him about how can I help? How can I contribute to the law enforcement world? And his response was, maybe you could learn more about how we can support the families. Uh, We, you know, a critical incident happens. We support the officer. We support the administration staff. But we're really not doing anything for the families. And how do we do more? And that was perfect because I was a family member. And so it's something I can care about. He extended his, you know, trust in me to others in the department and asked them to sign up basically for my interviews so that I could do this, which I'm very grateful for because I wouldn't have got the interviews otherwise. And so I interviewed law enforcement officers, spouses, and then adult children of law enforcement officers so that I could get a very, you know, um, a broad perspective of how police work impacts uh, law enforcement family. 
And in doing that, there's a ton of overlap for fire and military. And so I kind of learned about it all together. And then after all of that research on law enforcement family, I found a firefighter and I married him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, but they gave me a lot of information on going into a marriage with a first responder, not only living in the life of, you know, holidays are missed, overtimes happen, you know, they're passionate about their career, but you're scared and worried about them on the other side of it. So I I knew what I was saying yes to when I was agreeing to marry my husband. And so that helped a lot. But all the knowledge that then I brought with me into that marriage, uh, you know, was really helpful. And and we talked about this before, but I'll just kind of continue on and say that that is, you know, how I got inspired to write the book is because a couple years into our marriage, I realized that I was applying so much of what I knew from that research to help build a resilient family, a resilient marriage, and realized that the department never reached out to me once. They never let me know, hey, here are some impacts. Here's how you can be, you know, resilient. Here's ways to stay healthy and well, like I never got information from them. And I realized that no one was talking to the spouse and really made that my mission. Like, well, I'm a spouse. I have the education. I'm going to speak to the families. And so I wrote a book, The Firefighter Family Academy, really guiding and educating new fire spouses as to like what they were getting into and how to approach that in a way that's going to help their family be resilient. That's uh, thank you so much for kind of reiterating all of that. And that's yeah. so important because we talked about this earlier too. It's like, you know, you mentioned peer support. That's how you got into this when you were talking to that sergeant that your brother hooked up yeah. with. And w- I think we do a decent job, at least most agencies are starting to on implementing peer support programs for their personnel. Yeah. But we oftentimes forget to include the families and the kids. And so it sounds like you being so passionate about it, having that be your work, it's really benefiting not just your family directly, but all the families that that work alongside with your husband and you. Right. So when I you know, started meeting all these other families, the number one thing I pulled from my own research was that for the families, the support system of other first responder families was one of the most important things to them. For kids, it definitely was. And spouses, you know, felt less alone, less isolated. Kids felt like they weren't the only ones going through it, right? Um, And so I went into meeting all these new people from his academy and his families and collecting spouses numbers, starting to get you know, different family events together, even though we didn't have kids yet, it was like, I wanted to get the kids together because I wanted to build this foundation, this support system for me and my future kids to hopefully have. And we've done that. Like I, like an example is that I started um, planning a fire family camping trip with people from his academy. And we're on six years now and we're so excited. And these kids may not see each other all throughout the year because we don't live by each other, but we do our best to try and make this camping trip because we want to just like check in, see how people are growing. And it's helpful for kids to know when their parent goes to work, oh, I'm working with so-and-so today. They can put a picture to that person. They know whose family that is. If someone gets sent out to a wildland fire and I hear about it and it's one of these families, you know, I'm reaching out, all the other spouses are reaching out because we're all connected on a text 
you know, string to say, hey, how are you doing? How are the kids? Do you need anything? Let me know. I'm going to the store. I can grab something for you, you know. Um, And so like you're saying, this is our peer support network um, is a good way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing that I'm curious about is, so you've been doing this for however long, for mm-hmm. as long as you've you've been with your husband. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been, I know initially you said you never heard from the agency. Mm-hmm. Has anything changed over the years? Um, have they built that out? Have you Do you work with them directly or formally? Or is this just still something that you do independent of anything with the agency? Nothing has changed. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nothing has changed. I still have not heard from them. Uh, The only thing I have heard is I've heard other firefighters who aren't a part of this network go, oh, yeah, Academy class so-and-so is really close. They get together a lot. They really like, you know, it's like, you know, they know that there's a system put in place for these specific families. They don't quite understand how or why or how that's important to us. Uh, They just know it exists. Uh, But no, not heard from the department. Sometimes like most departments, they'll put maybe a Christmas party together or something, right? But um, I don't want to, but what, what happens is they send it out to all the first responders. And like I said, the support system wasn't as important to the first responder as it is to the family. And so oftentimes that information doesn't travel home because maybe they don't want to spend time going back to the department when there's like, I spent enough hours there, right? I don't want to go back on a Christmas party or this or that or whatever, a picnic. Um, but they have their support system because they see them at work every day. You know, and and it's like the spouses and the kids that get a little bit more isolated from it. So we yes, things happen, but it's not the same. It's not always um, sure. invested into in that way. So, no, we don't work together, but this is like just our personal life. This is just what I do for us. And hopefully the other families, you know, benefit as well, which I know they do and enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing, too, that I want to bring up um, is that you also, you, you really put this information out there, unlike uh, most clinicians. I mean, most clinicians are busy. They have their practice. They're passionate about what they do. Cause I've talked to, yeah. to others who work directly with first responders. But one thing that's a little unique about you is that you will put, not only do you have a podcast, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about, but you also do like video clips, mm-hmm. articles, you're constantly mm-hmm. putting out content, um, on your social media, which I think is so important because there's not a lot, in my opinion, there's not enough information that goes out on these topics in particular yeah. for spouses. Yes. And so if you, how did you come up and decide to do that? I mean, is it just something born out of, this is what I'd want to know if, <sighs> if I were, if I didn't have this information or yeah. you asked you know what? No. So when I said like, okay, I have to talk to the spouses because no one's talking to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think my first thought was like, well, I need a department to hire me to talk to the spouses. And, you know, that wasn't going to happen right away. And so I had to do it like, okay, well, what can I do? You know, how can I talk to the spouses? And now I'm at a point where yeah, social media. They just find they find my website. They find me on social media. First responders find my social media and learn from it. And so I just started talking on whatever platform I could find to spouses. And I think first responders, I know because they contact me, they hear it too. And it, and it's good information for them. But I try to really hold strong on like every, so I write blogs. There's 
30 plus blogs on my website of just like information about how to support your marriage, how to support your kids, how to all these things. I try really hard to hold strong to like, I am always addressing the first responder spouse. And sometimes people reach out to me because of that, because they're like, I've never heard anyone address the spouse before. I'm like, I know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know that's why I'm doing it because no one talks to us. So I try to take all that information I have, which I could definitely give to first responders and say, here's how you can, uh, you know, help your wellness. But instead I'm going, Hey, I know this about hypervigilance and trauma. And and let me talk to the spouse and say, here's how this could help your marriage. Here's how this could help you understand your first responder better. This is why they they need to decompress when they come home. Like no one's explained that to you, but let me tell you what's going on for them biologically, right? And spouses just like this light bulb, like, whoa, that makes so much sense, you know? And that's how, I think you asked me previously, like, how does this help your communication? How does this help your relationship? It's like just understanding what happens at work, how it affects their body, their mind, their mental wellness. Like when I know that stuff, I can kind of adapt to it in ways that helps me maybe give him space here, maybe help him talk about it in this way or, and, and it just, I think it helps connect us in a different way because I'm not just frustrated at what's happening, but I actually understand it so I can adjust to it. If that makes sense. It make no, it makes perfect sense because, you know, one of the things it's, it's helpful to give this information. And I think more agencies are starting to do this, mm-hmm. um, trying. to, to the agency personnel, them, you know, directly, yeah. but you're right. Where is the, there's a disconnect or a gap mm-hmm. between providing mm-hmm. that information mm-hmm. to the families. Cause they're the ones that, that, that we go home to. And yeah. so they're going to be seeing this and not given the same information Yes, or, or no information at all. So no, I think it's, I think it's great that you've noticed that there was a need and you're addressing it. Yeah. And I'll just say one more thing on that, that, I see it as this, like, sometimes it kind of feels like we're ignored, right? Like the agency is like, oh, these are our employees. So we're addressing our employees, right? And it's almost like, yeah, this isn't part of our employee, right? This is just another piece of their life. But in my experience as a spouse, every single thing that happens at work affects us at home somehow. So if there was a critical incident at work, that's going to affect our family somehow. If he's forced back for overtime, that's going to affect us. If he chooses to sign up or decline, say when he can, going on a wildland fire, that's because of us at home. He's Mm -hmm. making these. So it's like, even though the agency's ignoring us, we're completely connected. There's nothing that can happen at work that isn't affecting us at home or, or we're helping him. So sometimes I think that the wellness or a lot of time of how they're adapting to the job really is about how the spouse is able to navigate that and feel like they can support their first responder in this career or not. Are they challenging them in every move they make and like really more overtime more, you know, and it's like putting more stress on a first responder and how they're responding to the job, right? Or is there like an understanding with like, oh, okay, that makes sense because of this. Well, we'll navigate it this way at home so that the first responder can go to work and not feel like they're just abandoning the family, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I feel like my husband's wellness, um, like I have a huge part in that and how he enjoys or does not enjoy work. And yeah, does that make sense? 
Oh yeah, mm-hmm. De- it, it definitely makes sense. And I was going to ask you something and it's twofold really. One is, um, I just want to see what your thoughts are about this, but yeah. it's also kind of, um, a little bit self-motivating because of the, the job I have right now. I'm a wellness coordinator for an agency and this is actually something that we're working on right now. Yeah which is, um, bringing in families, um, and giving that, providing them training and access to information. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend? Like, let's say you had unlimited resources. You could walk into any agency and say, here's what I think you need to do and implement for families. Mm -hmm. What, What would you suggest? One, you have to get the contact information of the spouse. (laughs) That's nobody basic. (laughs) Nobody has it. And Uh the information does not travel home. Well, Um, Mm -hmm. emails go out, first responders ignore them, they don't, you know, bring them. And so the spouse is just kind of floating in space and doesn't get any of this information. So um, that is something that I get, I think, directly on social media, I'm talking to them directly, which is great. Uh, Mm -hmm. So getting the contact information of the spouse so that you can talk to them and see if they're interested in things. I think connecting spouses together is helpful. And um I don't know how an agency feels about this, but connecting them on their own connections without the first responder, because so much of our life is lived independent of the first responder. It's like what would happen in my experience is like if I'm connected to this family only because my husband's home and they're friends. And so we see them because of that. As soon as he's out, which is a lot, (laughs) he's gone. I no longer have that connection. It's not at my fingertips, right? Like if they're the ones setting it up, they're the friends. So it's like, I really have to build my own relationship with this family and this spouse so that when they're gone, I can say, hey, do you want to meet at the park? Like I've got the kids, you know? And 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 I think the other important piece, just bringing that up about play dates is what I maybe a um, department could do is like connecting families who live next to each other. Mm-hmm. Because we, we have pockets. I don't know if that's how it, it is in, in your state, but it's like a lot of first responders don't live in the town that they work in here because we've got like long commutes. And so there are like these pockets of like some family lives here an hour this way. Some families live an hour this way. Some, And so it's like it doesn't necessarily help for me to be connected to that family that's two hours away. But the families in my neighborhood, it is helpful for um, because we can do a park date. We can do a coffee, you know, day. I can go to the store and grab them something if they need it. So that's kind of like how I would think about it. So what about, uh, education or offering mm. classes for spouses? Like some of the Absolutely. things that you do on your own Yeah, coming in and just saying, Hey, having a day or having several trainings throughout the yeah. year, what would you recommend for that? Yeah, I definitely Yeah. Education on uh, what's going on for the first responder is helpful. I think what I find a lot of people most interested in is communication, you know, skills and how to help that process. Uh, Their kids, they want to know about like how is this affecting my kids and how do I support my kids through this? I do a lot of talks on that. Um, Sometimes what I find is that, you know, having the couple together, that's great. Like, I'm glad that they're getting educated at the same time. People don't open up when that happens. Spouses don't connect with one another and talk because 
there's like this weird pressure around like the, <laughs> the first responders are in the room. The first responders are like, don't say anything. <laughs> so, um, you know, when I do my, you know, webinars, it's usually spouses only. Um, when a department does it, they can oftentimes invite everyone and then it's like crickets. And so I just like expect that when I go in. So it's interesting, like I have a way of being able to connect with spouses differently than a department can because I don't represent the department. And there's that fear. I don't, I don't think we've broken that barrier, right? There's that fear that the department holds around, this is their job and I don't want to say anything. I want to fly under the radar as a first responder. So like, either we're not going and if we are going, we're not saying anything, <laughs> you know? So, um, and my events are different. I don't represent anyone. <laughs> and that, that's a good point, but you know, it sounds like what you're suggesting would be, you know, in a perfect world is have classes open to both the spouse and the first responder, but then also just spouses only too. Yeah. Yep. And in a perfect world, like what I'm saying about how the department brings this interesting piece in, like sometimes I wish a department could just hire me, but like, just let me do the supporting and just like bow out because they bring in a different level of like, I think people are worried or scared or like, what does this mean? And, and you know, are, is something going to like, uh, you know, punish my, you know, spouse later on in their career or their job, or someone's going to hear about this information? Is it confidential? You know, like it's, it's all these questions. And because I'm not a part of the department, there's a little bit more trust that can go into that. Yeah. And I think this is all still so new for, for agencies to be mm -hmm. doing things like that. I think that there's still a little bit of a stigma partially yep. to talk about some of this stuff. And then people are concerned about repercussions. Well, you know, what if I say this, is this going to impact, you know, you know, some position I go for later on, or I don't want people yeah. knowing this, that, or the mm -hmm. other thing. So I think there's a lot of reasons mm -hmm. why that it doesn't might be a little apprehensive. Yeah. Yep. So that makes sense. Yeah. And so if, so besides that, when you talk to spouses and couples and mm -hmm. you give advice on communication with all your research and everything that you, and now your direct, obviously your direct experience with being with a first yeah. responder, if you have somebody who's, um, a new spouse or maybe th their spouse might just be starting out their career field, what do you recommend? Cause these are, these are the kinds of things that, that I talk to spouses mm -hmm. and families about, uh, what to expect and how they can overcome barriers to communication. Mm -hmm. What topics like, do you usually talk about when you talk about, like, what do you kind of recommend and I'll kind of like bounce off that if that's okay so very general just you know because obviously I don't have your no your background. Of I don't expect I'm just like yeah trying to think of like what it is you want to hear from me that's all so one of the one of the biggest things I hear in um, whether it be during a spouse debrief yeah or even as I'm talking to families, because we do bring in families at the end of our academies and oh, we great, do a yeah. day where we do mm -hmm. a little bit of education. We're trying to build on that. Yeah. Um, but in talking to spouses, one of the biggest things that we hear, and we hear it from the first responders too, is um, something may have happened at work and they either, they didn't talk to me, they cut me off, they, yeah. Yeah, they didn't talk to me about this. Um, or some couples, uh, they will tell each other everything. Yeah. And so 
how do you figure out what's going to work best for your particular family and how do you navigate through that? Because people don't talk about these things beforehand. They don't, they don't think about it until they are presented with it. Totally. First of all, these, I'm smiling because these are chapters in my book, like conversations to have, because yeah, I'm like, Hey, here's a conversation to have. How much details do you want? What makes sense for your family? So what I always say is like in my book, I reiterate this a lot. There is no one right answer for any of Mm -hmm. these things, but you're going to have to talk about it and figure out what works for you. Every family is going to be different. And then I give an example of like maybe my boundary around it or what I want or what we do. Um, So with that being said, like you're right, there has to be a discussion and maybe you don't know until it happens, but then it happens. So now you got to get on the same page for next time. Um, Hey, that didn't go so well. (laughs) This was not good for us. So let's talk about how we want this to actually happen if this happens again, because Oftentimes it does. So it's it's knowing and understanding each other's boundaries around. And what happens is there's no discussion. And so then there's no conversation. And it's like sometimes, you know, her first first responders say like they don't want to burden their family. Right. They don't want to bring it home and burden their family. But I always talk about like there's a middle ground. You don't have to come home and talk about the details, but you can come home and talk about you know, your experience of the day, your experience of the calls, your stress, what is most stressful, right? At the job, maybe the, because oftentimes it's not the details that are the most stressful part of the job that's affecting them. So it's just getting on the same page. Um, What questions can a spouse ask? What's triggering or I don't want to answer that question. Um, What details does a spouse want? Maybe the spouse is so scared that they're going to share details that they don't ask at all, right? But if we get on the same page about here's what I do want to hear and here's what I don't want to hear, and then the first responder, here's what I'm okay with talking about. Here's what I'm not okay with talking about. Okay, now we can have a conversation and we're all very clear on what the boundaries are. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, and my husband and I have that. I'm a therapist and I can like take in lots of information about details when it comes to my clients. But when I go home, I don't want those details. He knows that. He knows how to talk about it. We don't just like free for all. Like that's my husband, you know, I don't want to hear that stuff. So we have a very clear understanding as to like what we're going to talk about and what we're not going to talk about. Yeah. And it sounds like, um, I probably need to get a copy of your book, first of all, <laughs> and check it out because it doesn't sound like what you've gotten there is specific just for people. Yeah. It sounds like it applies to anybody. So yeah. 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 And, and then that goes for so many different conversations. So like a huge one that you haven't brought up is like the transition home is like Mm -hmm. one massive thing that first responder couples struggle with is like, tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. This transition home, right. It's like, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the book, like Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. Okay, so Dr. Gilmartin talks about the hypervigilance biological roller coaster and how first responders are in this hypervigilant mode. And it takes a while for the body to come down off that. And when they do come down, it's like crash and like kind of like exhaustion and detached and all this stuff. So they can come home. This is from my experience of working with couples. Sometimes they come home in hypervigilant mode and it's like, Lots of negativity, like, get your room clean, do this, do this, why is this? You know, it's like, and they're still like pointing out all the negatives that's going on around them. And sometimes they come out in that like exhausted, depleted, detached mode. That's different for everyone. We got to have a transition in there from work life 
to home life. Um, for the first responder, there's got to be some sort of transition. And you just, as a first responder, really have to figure out yourself, what do you need to transition mentally into home life? Is it space? Is it time? Is it a workout? Is it a shower? Like it's different for everyone. But if the spouse doesn't understand that there has to be this transition, you can take that really personally. Like, what do you mean? You've been gone for 24 hours and now you need space? <laughs> you know, it's not about you and your relationship. It's about them physically and mentally trying to get back into home life. So it's like the spouse also has to figure out what do they need to transition for a spouse. My experience is transitioning from a single parent home to a double parent home. That's the transition that I'm trying to make is like I've been managing it all. And sometimes the experience is I just want to like shove it off, like take it. I'm done. But it's like they're done too, right? So it's got to be this balance and this understanding. And couples have to come up with like, okay, I need one hour. But then after that, I can relieve you of this. Or maybe it's vice versa. The spouse is like done. It's like, I just need to take a walk. And then I can come back and give you your space to go take a workout. Like, it's going to be different for every single family. The point is, is that you've discussed what your needs are. And then you try and come to a compromise about how we're going to do this transition. Because it's such a massive transition transition in our homes when they've been gone for many hours and in hypervigilant mode. And we've been single parenting without them managing all of it. And then we come home and we all have to then just like get along and run a double parent household. Like it's just so extreme. Like most professions don't have to go through that, but like we do. And that is a real source of tension between couples often. And maybe if you don't mind, Rochelle, just for those who might be listening who aren't as familiar with hypervigilance as, yeah. as others, could you just briefly explain what it is? And you talked about the biological link and yeah. how that impacts and affects and you see those symptoms that you already touched upon and just yeah. quickly give us a yeah. little explanation. So when I, like, if I'm talking about hypervigilance, uh, I almost describe it to put it in just like very basic terms. It's when our, our body is worried about danger happening, right? So I would be hypervigilant myself if I was like walking down an unfamiliar like alley at nighttime. I don't know the area. I don't know the town. I would be hyper alert and hyper aware to every sound or shadow or thing because everything I would perceive as a threat. That would put me in hypervigilance mode. First responders have to work in that mode because everything could potentially be a threat, especially law enforcement. You have to perceive everything as a threat in order to be safe. Our body is meant to do that in like short spurts to keep us alive. Uh, first responders work 12 to 24 hour shifts our body is not necessarily meant to be on in hypervigilance mode for that extended period of time. So when it does that, as soon as it kind of escapes that and go, gets the message like, okay, I can let go, like say they come home, in order to correct itself, it kind of goes into this, you know, depleted state where it needs to reach back to normal levels, but it it's like a... Um, 
like if you had the worst day of your life, you come home and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm be, I'm exhausted and it'll take until tomorrow for you to feel okay again. Well, it's a little bit of what's happening for first responders biologically when they come home. It's like their whole body just kind of takes a dump with all the adrenaline that and cortisol that was being pushed through their system to be hypervigilant. Now the body has to recorrect itself. So um, does, is that enough? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important. I mean, a combination, obviously, of communication and education mm-hmm. is something I think is so mm-hmm. important because even just having that little bit of information about why yeah. somebody might need that space or time and what's yeah. going on inside that you can't see yeah. to explain why they may need that time or yeah. why they may be acting or feeling the way that they, they are and then what what can be done. And that's yeah. where that communication comes in yeah. on both both people's excuse me, on both of their parts to be able to, to figure out how you're going to proceed once Mm -hmm. they come home. So no, I appreciate you clarifying that for everybody. Yeah. And a lot of first responders don't even understand that about themselves. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that couples start to take it personal, like that it's about their relationship. Like work is really exciting and home life is, gosh, I can't even stay awake. It's boring. You know, but it's like, is that really how you feel about the two? Or is that a biological process that's going on and your body needs to recorrect correct itself? And spouses, that's where a light bulb goes off and goes, oh, you mean it's not about me? You mean it's like not about them coming home and them just wanting to detach from me? It's like, no, it's about like what's happening for them physically. And then usually after a day or two, like they can kind of like come, <laughs> come back. But oftentimes with law enforcement, they're going back to work. So it's really hard profession. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's great information to have for all spouses and all families. And mm-hmm. like you said, all first responders. And so, you know, I know that book has been around for a while, emotional survival for mm-hmm. law enforcement. Mm-hmm. We give it to our recruits, but I think it's just still very relevant, especially mm-hmm. that part about hypervigilance, the biological roller coaster. pretty much it's saying whatever comes up, meaning the adrenaline yep. and the cortisol has to come down and yep. it comes down hard sometimes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to transition and ask you a question. You brought this up earlier about, I think it's your brother who is married to somebody in law enforcement or Mm -hmm. was, Mm -hmm. what do you suggest for couples that are both first responders? Cause you know, my husband and I were both first responders (laughs) retired. Um, I have a lot of friends who are in the same boat. A lot of, you know, a lot of females that are cops end up marrying other cops, not always. So um, cause that's just kind of another layer to yeah. different things. So do you, do you ever see couples that are, that are both first responders or do you have any special advice for those of us like that? Oh boy. You probably have better advice than I do. You're living it. That's, I mean, that's a hard one. And you know, I don't feel like that's not the common thing that I come in, you know, that comes in. So I don't feel like I have as much expertise on that because it's, it's more uncommon to see in my practice. Um, So kind of guessing at it, what I'd say is that I think as if you're both in it, you know, you probably do really good at understanding each other's work and knowing what you need and understanding when you kind of just need to like detach or, or talking about it. Like you're probably really good at the support part when it comes to the job, which non-first responder spouses can struggle with because they don't get it, right? They don't understand a lot of it because they're not educated on it. But the part that might be lacking is the how do we connect as like a couple 
you know, like how, like the friendship, the intimacy, the like just being supportive to one another, having an identity outside of this career because it's so important to have that. And it's like, I think that a non-first responder spouse is, it's are more likely to pull their first responder out of that identity to find, you know, whether it be other friends or other events, because that's not what they're interested in. But I imagine, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just like kind of guessing here, but like that when you're both in it, it's probably way harder to find things like outside of it because that is both of your worlds. It's hard to even think like, why would we need a whole separate world? <laughs> like, Because it's helpful for your mental wellness to have that, but it's, it's probably harder to see outside of it. I would agree that we, um, for me personally, it was like that yeah. a, for a time. Now it's not like that. Of course, my husband and I are older though. I mean, we've already retired. And you're retired. But, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, but, but I agree. I mean, we have, we lit, we were so hot and heavy in our careers. We were always getting called out and that was yeah. our life. But on the flip side of that, for us personally, we were always able to support each other too. Mm -hmm. And I had somebody to come home and talk to about certain things and vice versa. So mm -hmm. we, we figured it out. It wasn't mm -hmm. always perfect. Um, mm -hmm. Honestly, I wish a lot of the things that I now know today, I would have known, mm -hmm. you know, 15 mm -hmm. or so years ago, because I think it could have helped mm -hmm. a little bit, but you know, everything ended up working out really good for us. Yeah. Um, but, but I would say that other first responder couples that I know, very similar to what you said, but I also think that first responders in general, we're kind of resistant. Uh -huh. I think it's changing, but I think we've been resistant and reluctant to, to seek out help and mm -hmm. therapy. Um, so that could be part of it too. Yeah. Why they don't, I wonder. I don't see them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, no one's pulling them in. Um, and, and, you know, boundaries around work is really important to preserve your personal life. And I imagine it would be harder when you both do the job to have great boundaries around work. Like we're, it's like, how do we have a conversation when we really want to be talking about this thing? Like, it's like, no, can you, it's no work talk, right? It, it just would be harder. I think to draw that line because you know, they get it. It's the same thing that happens when first responders see each other at a party, right? It's like, it's so hard not to talk about work. You know, they can't just like, but if they went to a party with no other first responders, very easy to not talk about work. So I imagine that that would be hard in a, in a relationship couple drawing that boundary to be like, maybe we're talking about work at this point, but the rest of the time, it's just personal life. Like we're, we're going to draw that boundary. And, you know, I think that would be hard to do. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's a lot less work talk now. I mean, we, even well, though we're right. retired, we, we both have other jobs. It's more, and it, it started to become that too, before we retired, we're yeah. a lot less about work and more yeah. about kids and things, which, which actually leads me to my, my next question. You did mention families and kids. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for people? Because, um, there are things that I look back on now and have now heard from my kids who are, are younger. I mean, we had our kids when we were a little bit older, yeah. um, where I really thought, that I was sheltering them and not yeah. allowing them to hear a lot about what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, but they still knew and, mm -hmm. and they still were impacted by certain things. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have when it comes to kids and, and how much to share with them about what first responders do and yeah. how much to include them and bring them into the world? Like, how do you find that balance? Yeah, it's important 
to remember that our kids are sensitive. Um, oftentimes I hear, especially from law enforcement, that, you know, they just want to talk about reality <laughs> and just give their kids, you know, this is reality. They need to know. They need to right. know. And that's not true. Like they don't need to know. And I think it's important for law enforcement officers to remember that their reality is not the average reality. They live in a very scary world because that's what you respond to. All the scary, bad day problem stuff. Um, But the average person does not. And so because it's your reality doesn't mean it's the general population reality And I don't want it to be your kid's reality, you know, in that sense, like it's hard for kids to process all that information. So it's, um, you can talk about, you know, your work, but I find it to be more important to help kids understand like your connection, your passion, why you're doing it, um, how, what kind of measures you take to protect yourself, like all those types of things. The less boring, I mean, the more boring stuff, right? The less exciting stuff, because sometimes first responders get wrapped up in like, they just want to talk about the exciting stuff so they can be like cool to their kids, maybe. <laughs> like, just like this happened, this, ha-, you know, and, and sometimes that's scary to kids. The thing is, is you can't really hide it because your job is so well known by the general public as to what happens and what you do. Like kids are going to know by a certain age what it is. And so it's, it's your job to allow them like to have their thoughts and feelings. And I think the best thing is to open communication with them by just like allowing them space to talk and process and have their own feelings. Sometimes with this is with everyone, with our kids, we want to like solve the problem for them or um, give them our thoughts about it. But as our kids start to become, you know, preteen, teen, like they're developing their ideas about their own world and how they feel about things and think about things. And it's important that they see you as someone who's going to support them and not tell them what to do in those situations. So it's just kind of saying like, yeah, like what have you heard about X, Y, and Z, you know, what are your thoughts about that? And really kind of allow your kids to tell you where they're at with it versus you kind of jumping in and telling them where they should be with it. You know, like if making that kind of difference and then you can give them information if they, you can fill in the gaps if they need it, but just remembering like our kids are sensitive and sometimes we think they can handle more than they actually can and process. And we're adults. It's hard for us to process things sometimes. Um, A lot of first responders tend to talk about work when their kids are nearby. And you, I am telling you as a therapist who sees kids in the office, they're listening. I don't care if they're playing, if their TV's on, if their iPad's on and they're doing something else, they're listening, they hear it, and they're picking up on the emotions in the room because they talk about it in therapy. And so sometimes, oh no, we don't talk to them about our job. It's like, but you talk about things that are going on at work or in the world, in the vicinity, like, oh, just another blah, blah, blah call today, for instance, when you come in the house. Okay, that kid is taking note. What? Another this? You know, in the world, right? It's like they're they're absorbing that. And as much as you think you're not talking to them directly about it, like they're getting information, they're sensitive, they're picking up on their environment. So you just have to remember that. And be really careful about when, where you talk about it, how you talk about it. Sometimes the way we just say things, they pick up on it. That's such good advice. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, okay, 
I did that. <laughs> I did that. That's I'm a bad mom. I did that. No. So <laughs> I think it's just like sometimes parents are really like confused. Like, I don't know where they got that, you know, like and it's like you have to think about you're really you're bringing it home, even though you think you're not because you haven't had that direct conversation with them. That doesn't mean it hasn't come home. Sometimes it's just the way like, oh, we want to buy this car. No, not that car. I've seen that one wrecked too many times. Something like that, right? That's simple first responder talk. Okay, kid, absorb. They're taking note. Oh my gosh, yeah. car accident. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it, it, so it's just our kids are sensitive and we have to remember that. Well, my husband and I have already had this conversation. We are convinced that we've already done a good job of screwing our kids up to this point, but <laughs> we, we're, we're, we're trying, we're trying to work on that. <laughs> it, you know, we, we're human. We're human. <laughs> So let me ask you this, because I know I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do want to talk to you about your podcast, Code 3 Families. And maybe I'll kind of ask you two things at once is I want to know for you personally, because I have a friend who's a therapist who sees first responders, but she also sees a lot of other therapists. And so Mm -hmm. for you personally, like how... Who, who do you, who's your support system, besides, you know, besides your family? Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason it made me think to ask you that is because you have kind of an interesting story about your podcast partner mm-hmm. and yeah. how you guys kind of came together. So, yeah, I know. I thought of her immediately. So, uh, yes, I have a podcast, Code 3 Families, and I have a co-host and we just talk to each other. We don't do interviews, but she is a fellow psychologist who we went to grad school together who fell in love with a police officer at the same time I was falling in love with a firefighter. So Aww. our lives have <laughs> paralleled one another. Uh, we've even worked at the same places. Uh, sh- and um, we both have a three-year-old boy and a four and now um you know her hers is a couple months difference but she has a newborn girl as well mm-hmm. so we have a very similar life it's just we live the fire and the police world which are a lot of similarities a lot of differences so our podcast is one talking to spouses about some of this important information so that they're educated and understand but also we're talking about our own daily life and the struggles of being a first responder spouse while being a working parent with young kids and how chaotic that is and how much of the family life we hold and have to hold and have adjusted to over time and so it's one educating spouses but also helping them feel like not alone in the chaos. So I think it's been helpful. We we get people who um, email in and say, hey, like this has changed the way I've been able to support my husband as a firefighter. Like we will sometimes listen to the podcast together and then have these discussions about our marriage and how these things are affecting us. And that just like is why we're doing it. It's because we want these conversations to be happening at home. And sometimes you're just so wrapped up in living the life that you don't realize like how different your world is than everyone else's. Yeah, that's amazing because that that is exactly why you guys are doing your podcast, mm-hmm. I imagine, is to just create um just create a platform to mm-hmm. get the information out and to reach out and help those mm-hmm. who may not know about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I have a podcast, um, lots of blogs on my website. You can, I have lots of social media. Um, I do, you know, video posts and sometimes uh, educational like blog posts. You can find me at First Responder Family Psychology. And that's my website as well. FirstRespondersFamilyPsychology.com. Sometimes we host like webinars for spouses, um, you know, so things like that we offer here and there. 
So two questions. If you have, because um, I noticed you do teletherapy on yeah. your website. Mm -hmm. So do you see people that are outside of California as well? No, it's illegal for, um, you know, my profession. I can only see people in the state I'm licensed in. So gotcha. if you're in California and um, then I can see you. Otherwise, yeah, I have lots of resources that you can utilize. Mm-hmm. But if there's somebody who's um, a leader or an agency decision maker who might want to bring you on for a webinar or even bring yep. you in person to give training to their agency, yes. that would be something you would do. Yes, I can do trainings, webinars, things like that. It's just to take someone on as an individual therapy client, I can only do within California. But everything else, yes, I'm available and open to do. Excellent. Well, Rochelle, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And in some, some of the stuff we talked about twice, <laughs> so I yeah. really appreciate your, your patience, uh, with all that, that snafu, but, but thank you so much for everything that you do for, for spouses and families of first responders. Um, you have so much energy and I it's do. like, it's, you do it's you have a lot of energy, with how little sleep I get <laughs> and how exhausted my, exhausting my kids are, but somehow, but, but no, really it's contagious. I mean, you can see how much you care about this stuff and, and keep on doing it because you know, we're, we're just getting started. So thank you for everything that you do. Yeah. Thank you for reaching out. This was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. <laughs> Bye. I hope you enjoyed the show again. If you enjoyed it, please share it with someone, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website. Thank you.